people are touching their masks, they're, they're not handling masks correctly. And that actually, many people believe that it contributes to the spread of COVID. With COVID hospitalizations hitting new records every day, Anchorage Mayor Dave Bronson holds firm against a mask mandate. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Tuesday, September 7th. Good evening, I'm Lori Townsend. Also tonight, supply chain woes are making it difficult for New Talk to finish relocating. We got 48 lights that are trapped somewhere in Tennessee floods to finish the lighting. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine is now authorized in the U.S. for anyone 12 years or older. Getting your child immunized with this free, safe, and effective vaccine is a great way to get them safely back to sports, get-togethers, and other fun summer activities. Learn more about COVID-19 vaccines and schedule appointments at covidvax.alaska.gov or call the State of Alaska COVID-19 Vaccine Helpline at 1-833-482-9546. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department Department of Health and Social Services. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. Did you know that early physical therapy intervention for back pain can reduce costs and improve outcomes? Physical therapists are movement experts that treat people of all ages and abilities to improve and maintain quality of life. You have the right to choose your own PT. A referral is not required in the state of Alaska. This message sponsored by the Alaska Physical Therapy Association. Alaska's already overwhelmed hospitals took on another 20 COVID-19 patients over the long Labor Day weekend, leaving nearly 200 people hospitalized with the coronavirus. The state reported 186 COVID-19-related hospitalizations today, up from 165 the last time numbers were reported. It also reported more than 2,100 new cases of the virus over the same four-day period and two new deaths. More than 20% of patients in Alaska hospitals have the virus according to state data. The increases hit the Matsu Hospital especially hard, nearly doubling hospitalizations over the past few days. Officials there say the hospital is at capacity and is no longer accepting patients from other institutions. That's a problem because the Matsu Hospitals had been taking patients from rural areas when space was unavailable at packed Anchorage hospitals. Alaska's hospital advocacy group is continuing to call on residents to get the COVID-19 vaccines and to take other precautions like wearing masks. It has also asked Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy to issue a disaster declaration. A spokesman for Dunleavy says the governor does not plan to issue such a declaration. Instead, he's calling on the Alaska legislature to pass two bills that he's proposed to aid health care providers. Political newcomer Dave Bronson took office as Anchorage's mayor in July, promising to take Anchorage in a new direction on COVID-19 restrictions and homelessness. Two months into his administration, Bronson is faced with surging COVID-19 cases and an assembly that has been resistant to his agenda. Alaska Public Media's Lex Trinan spoke with Bronson over the phone earlier today about his first two months in office. Bronson calls the Assembly's vote against Sammy Graham, his nominee to oversee the library system, a sea change. We'd spent about six weeks up to that point, you know, working well together, at least on the surface, I thought um, that that was a change. Um, you know, when, when people attack me, uh, I expect it. In fact, if I wake up in the morning and, and the left is, or the Assembly at least, is not attacking me, I... It, it's, I don't enjoy that, I let, but when you attack my people, that's a whole different thing. 
In fact, that's an opposite thing. Let's move on to COVID, if you don't mind. Um, the hospitalizations are at the highest level they've been. And you've said, you know, you're you're committed to getting the, the accurate information out about COVID and, and, and not doing any restrictions or business closures. Is there a point at which you would be willing to reconsider, you know, your, your stance on mask mandates and business closures, things like that? Or is that just a, a hard no? That's that's just something that you'll never consider? No. So, you know, if, if we heard that, you know, people were not getting care in the ER, you know, there was waiting lines, people out the doors, things like that, you would not not consider any business closures or mask mandates? Um, I would look at the cause of the people standing outside. And uh, we, we, we simply need to, quite frankly, follow the science on this. And we can look at the jurisdiction. Over the last 18 months now, the meta-analysis is, is quite clear. Those jurisdictions, whether state, local, or national, that did shutdowns versus not shutdowns, um, the data is quite clear is that the results are about the same, but the economies aren't destroyed. And what about masking? You know, that's something that's been suggested. You know, if we do do masking, it, it makes it a lot easier to keep businesses open and, and keep events going on and things like that. You know, are, are you willing to reconsider your your stance on masking if we were to see, you know, some, you know, continued uh, rise in hospitalizations or, or is that in the same category as business closures? Well, uh, again, I, I keep coming back to 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 the science of this and and. And uh, I'm a data-driven guy. I've always been that way. And um, if you can think, if you can tell me uh, that masks work, I, I know what a lot of people say. And it's like their last ditch. Well, we have to do something. And it, we even hear this from national leaders. We have to do something. There's no, there's no study that says masking uh, really works because they're not being worn correctly. Uh, masks work in hospitals because those people are one they wear N95s, and two they know how to how to wear them, and, uh, and they wear them properly. So yeah, that that is helpful. Uh, but in the public, people people are touching their masks uh, and hanging their masks on their their car mirror. Uh, they're uh, they're they're not handling masks correctly, and that, that actually many people believe that it contributes to the spread of COVID. So because you're touching your face very often and I, I get this from doctors. So I'm I'm not sitting here living in a vacuum. I'm talking to doctors all the time, uh, some of them who are afraid to come out and speak against the uh, the the public, uh, maybe political um, issue or, or perspective of mass. But um, that's a, they said this is ridiculous. Dave Bronson is mayor of Anchorage. He spoke with Alaska Public Media's Lex Trinan. Numerous studies, including in Alaska, have shown that mask mandates and business closures have slowed the spread of COVID-19. Anchorage police have identified the officer whose weapon discharged and struck another officer Friday night as Ryan Nye, a three-year veteran of the department. According to a police dispatch, Nye and two other officers responded to a report of shots fired on Lana Court in the university area Friday night. Officers arrived and approached a suspect, 29-year-old Justin Constantine. During a struggle with Constantine, Nye's service pistol discharged and a bullet struck another officer in the lower body. The injured officer was transported to the hospital where they were taken into surgery on Saturday morning. Anchorage Police Chief Ken McCoy said in a statement Tuesday, quote, the injured officer is recovering well and has been moved out of ICU. 
As of Tuesday, police have not provided further explanation about why the firearm discharged. The state office of special prosecutions is reviewing the incident. McCoy says the results of the investigation will be made available to the public. Constantine was also taken to the hospital with life, non-life-threatening injuries. He was arrested and now faces several weapons charges. Still to come on Alaska News Nightly, local fishermen are thrilled that Anakiski Lake has hundreds of newly stocked rainbow trout. Things I really want to do is be able to have people come down here, bring their kids down here, and have like a maybe a one weekend ice fishing contest. That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. The Nature Conservancy in Alaska is engaged in an exciting new effort, the Alaska Climate Opportunities Assessment. Join in on the virtual conversations featuring expert Alaskans and learn about innovative efforts to implement bipartisan climate solutions and mitigate the worst effects of a changing climate. Learn more and read the specially commissioned reports at nature.org slash akclimateopportunity. This message sponsored by the Nature Conservancy in Alaska. With new talk continuing to erode at alarming rates, the urgency to move grows by the day. But construction in Muktavik, the new village that will replace the eroding one, has been slow the past two summers. COVID-19 is a big reason why. KYUK's Greg Kim reports on the progress of the relocation effort and how the pandemic has affected it. Nine homes in Muktavik remain unfinished and unoccupied since they were started last summer. Nobody has moved from Newtok to Mokhtavik in two years since 2019, when about a third of the community's 350 residents migrated over. Newtok Acting Tribal Administrator Philip Carl explains part of the reason for last year's slow progress. We couldn't get any cabinets because of uh, this COVID thing. Many manufacturers for cabinets, stoves, and other household items had either shut down or drastically cut production due to the pandemic. Patrick LeMay is in Muktavik leading the construction effort. LeMay says those material shortages have continued into this year. We got 48 lights that are trapped somewhere in Tennessee floods to finish the lighting. There's a shortage of fire extinguishers in the nation. The supply chain has been a, a disaster. But the material shortage is just one way COVID-19 has slowed construction in Muktavik. LeMay says the other reason is the virus itself. Three of my guys went home for the weekend, and they all got together on a Friday night just to, to relax, and, and uh, they all called me on Monday and said we all have COVID. LeMay said that three local workers from New Talk were infected with the virus last month. Then, nearly all the remaining laborers chose to stop working due to concern over a COVID-19 outbreak in the community. They were just seeing so much COVID going around, they all just decided to go home, stop work until they can get tested. The outbreak was the biggest New Talk had experienced since the pandemic began. 32 New Talk residents tested positive for COVID-19 in August. New Talk had only seen a few cases before that. The community's vaccination rates are lower than the regional average. About 42 percent of New Talk's entire population is vaccinated, compared to about 50 percent for the entire YK Delta. Acting Tribal Administrator Philip Carl says he doesn't know why people in New Talk aren't getting vaccinated. He says he encourages people on VHF to get the shots, but he himself hasn't received one. Because I might get sick or something. Side effects from the COVID-19 vaccine can include tiredness, headache, chills, and fever. 
However, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say these should go away within a few days and that serious side effects are extremely unlikely. People are more likely to get seriously sick if they're unvaccinated and exposed to COVID. A recent CDC study showed that unvaccinated people are over 29 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 as unvaccinated people. The decline in construction in Mukhtavik since 2019 isn't just because of COVID, though. The project's funding has also declined. In 2019, Newtalk was flush with cash, infused by $15 million in federal funding. And while Newtalk has continued to receive smaller grants since then, large grants of more than a million dollars are rare. The entire cost of relocation has been estimated at over $100 million. While construction of the new village has slowed, the need to move there hasn't. Carl, the acting tribal administrator, said Newtalk lost over 100 feet of its coast since April. When spring came, we started eroding after it warmed up. After that storm, we lost more. Carl said the community demolished several teaching housing units that were near the water's edge. On the other side of the river in Mokhtavik, the community is finishing up a new duplex for teachers. It's also finishing the nine homes that were started last year. And the AVCP Regional Housing Authority is adding two more. While not as fast as it'd like, Newtalk is making progress towards a new future in its new home. In Bethel, I'm Greg Kim. Most commercial property owners in Juneau are smarting from their tax bills this year after the city raised the assessed value of their land by 50 percent. City officials say this is just the first step in a multi-year correction to fix a decade of neglect in the annual assessments of commercial properties. Those values directly impact tax bills and the balance of who's paying for city services. But the owners of hundreds of affected properties think this first step already overvalues their holdings. As KTOO's Jeremy Shea reports, they're fighting it. Hold on, do not go anywhere. Peggy Ann McConaughey is a real estate broker in Juneau who teaches classes for other real estate professionals. Okay. I have my little assessment cards. She has a handful of mailers that the Juneau Assessor's Office sends every April to property owners. And my husband and I own the building that's also known as Psych Alaska Building. And it is um, a building that we are appealing the 2021 assessed values on right now. A quick disclosure, I worked for Psych Alaska in the summer of 2012. This year's mailer puts the value of the lot that the bike shop sits on, which is about a sixth of an acre and zoned waterfront commercial, 50% higher than last year. That also means she owes about $1,600 more in property taxes this year. It's not something that makes me kind of happy. If my property was worth over a million bucks... That's after the building is factored in. I'd say I'd put it on the market today and try to sell it, although there's no market for it at all. McConaughey says that's one of the problems with the assessor's methodology. She and other property owners don't think the new assessments capture how volatile the commercial real estate market is in Juneau. There's the pandemic, of course, but McConaughey says there's also been longer economic trends that years of flat assessments did reflect. We live on the vagaries of us being the capital city. And when you have a capital city that goes through things like oil was $100 per barrel but goes down to zero, that affects my business and my building just as it affects most other people's businesses and other people's buildings. So that is not necessarily true that the properties go up. He's wrong. The assessor is actually a she, but keeps a low profile because her work is supposed to be free from public and political influence. Instead, city finance director Jeff Rogers has been the public face of the assessment issues. 
Explaining the correction and justification is complicated and technical, but a big piece comes from the assessor comparing known sales prices over the last five years with the city's assessed values. For commercial properties, sales prices on average were much higher. Rogers says the data indicates that the commercial real estate market isn't as volatile as unhappy property owners think. Still, the owners of 207 commercial properties filed appeals this year. There's nothing about uh, the appeals that makes me think that we have made a global error. We uh, have demonstrated in a number of analyses that the vast majority of commercial parcels have not seen any increase to their base land value in a decade or longer. Some of those appeals are being resolved through conversations with the assessor's office. Most are pending with the Board of Equalization for individual hearings and decisions. The board is a panel of volunteers appointed by the Juno Assembly. Rogers says he wants all of the appeals to be fully settled by the end of the calendar year. But with so many outstanding appeals, it's not clear if that soft deadline will be met with the regular process. Rogers says lawyers for the city and a group of property owners are trying to see if there's a way to hold a group hearing. Rogers acknowledges that the abrupt change feels unfair to commercial property owners, but there's a whole other class of property owners paying more than their fair share, because residential property assessments have been rising more or less in line with actual market values. So uh, if you are a residential property owner and you've owned your property over time, you have borne an increasing burden of property tax for the borough, for the provision of police and fire and all the other services the city provides, because commercial land has been underassessed. Juno's local elected officials have been learning about the issue. Mayor Beth Weldon says they don't have many options to intervene. One action the Assembly did take recently was to give property owners a partial reprieve on their tax bills this fall. They can pay most of their bill on the regular due date and the rest by the end of the year. Those due dates apply even if an appeal is pending, but Rogers points out that if a property owner wins their appeal and they overpay their taxes, then a state law requires that the city refund excess taxes plus interest at a generous 8% annualized rate. In Juneau, I'm Jeremy Shea. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by Scan Home, Alaska's headquarters for contemporary home and office furnishings since 1984 with statewide shipping. More at scanhome.com. A new community-based statewide women veterans visibility project is named after Mary Louise Rasmussen, a retired colonel who served as director of the Women's Army Corps and paved the way for so many women in the military. After leaving military service, she continued to serve the community here in Alaska, and her legacy is honored with the Operation Mary Louise project. Learn more and become involved at OperationMaryLouise.org. This message is sponsored by the Alaska Community Foundation Women Veteran Fund. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game stocks some Alaska lakes with hatchery-grown fish for anglers. It unloaded hundreds of rainbow trout into a lake in Nikiski for the first time recently, and as KDLL's Sabine Pooks reports, it was quite the spectacle. Yeah, let her have them, Kevin. One minute, there are zero rainbow trout in John Hedberg Lake. Fewer than 30 seconds later, there are 700. Nikiski residents are cheering on fish culturist Chuck Pratt Thursday as he flushes hundreds of trout from a hatchery truck through a hose and into Hedberg Lake. It's the first time the Alaska Department of Fish and Game is stocking the lake, 
just off the Kenai Spur Highway in Nikiski, around milepost 23. Starting in 2022, the department will add 1,000 rainbow trout fingerlings to the lake each year. Yeah, if you, have an, if you have a hook, you can get them. Now, they're going to catch hook and line. All right. Jason Ross is president of the Nikiski Community Council, and he's been building the park next to the lake for a few years. He says fishing was one of the first things people asked about when he got started. I just While I was out ice fishing one day, I was like, well, maybe I ought to talk to some people. So I just called Fishing Game. Fishing Game stocks several lakes in Nikiski and around the peninsula. Jenny Gates, assistant area manager for Fishing Game's Soldatna office, says there are a few factors the department considers before it stocks a lake like lake depth and oxygen content. Primarily the most important um, requirement for our lakes is that they have public access and that they have adequate habitat to sustain a fish population. The 700 trout the department unloaded Thursday are from the William Jack Hernandez sport fish hatchery in Anchorage. They're between 9 and 14 inches and were originally supposed to be part of a fishing pool at the Kenai Peninsula Sport, Rec and Trade Show this spring before the show was canceled. Gates says the only other fish they found in Hedberg Lake are sticklebacks. The lake is 23 feet at the deepest and named for a Nikiski homesteader, though it's not officially John Hedberg Lake yet. Ross says they're still working to make that title official. Gates says Fishing Game doesn't currently have a formal program to survey and sample stocked lakes. I'll probably come back um, in the spring and have a look at this lake and, and see how the fish did over, over winter. Um, set a couple of pike nets and variable mesh uh, gill nets for, for an hour or two and see what we catch. Ross says he'd like to host fishing events at the lake in the winter. He's been working on making the park accessible for local recreationists with a track for bikers and ski trails in the winter. Tony Loop of Nikiski is building a community garden next door. Here's Ross again. My vision is is definitely some ice fishing contests for kids is one of the things I really want to do is build to have people come down here, bring their kids down here and have like a maybe a one weekend ice fishing contest and you know see see what I don't what we would do for prizes and whatnot or whatever just to have some fun and get some people out of their house in the wintertime and have an excuse to go ice fishing and, and you know bring the kids along. The bag and possession limit for rainbow trout in Hedberg Lake is five fish, and only one can be 20 inches or longer, according to Fish and Game. For more information on sport fishing regulations, head to the Department of Fish and Game website. For KDLL, I'm Sabine Pooks. Well, guys, what do you think? Does it look okay for them? The award-winning podcast, This Land, is back for a second season. This one examines the legal attacks on a more than 40-year-old federal law meant to protect Native children in the U.S. KMBA's Trip Krause talks with the host about what it takes to unravel the complex legal issues surrounding the Indian Child Welfare Act. The first season of This Land examined two legal cases that became incredibly important to criminal jurisdiction in recognizing tribal land. Cherokee journalist Rebecca Nagel is the host. I would say broadly the podcast is about cases that are important to federal Indian law and indigenous sovereignty um, that I felt like needed to be covered more. <laughs> Two cases pitted state jurisdiction over tribal jurisdiction in Oklahoma, where the Creek were forced to relocate from the southeast during the Trail of Tears in the 1800s. They signed another treaty with the federal government in 1856. Oklahoma never really recognized the Muscogee Nation reservation. And Oklahoma's main argument was, you know, 
we haven't recognized these reservations in over a century. And so you can't possibly ask us to recognize them now. There was no real legal argument behind that. It was- Eventually, those cases went to the U.S. Supreme Court and the decisions reaffirmed the Muscogee still had reservation in eastern Oklahoma, but it's still a huge legal mess. Oklahoma continues to challenge the Supreme Court decision. Nagel pivoted from that story to another legal battle that's been brewing over the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. That's a federal law passed in 1978 intended to prevent the removal of Native children from their families and communities. Before ICWA, the federal government was adopting Native children out of their communities to white families. Um, and a couple of things were going on. The federal government the, under the BIA had this program called the Indian Adoption Project, where it was literally trying to take Native kids and put them up for adoption for them to be adopted by white families. And the other thing that was going on that I don't think it's talked about as much is that there was just deep racial bias within child welfare systems. So, you know, social workers were seeing Native kids being raised by an aunt or being raised by a grandma, but because they weren't being raised by the biological parent, that was child abandonment. The Association of American Indian Affairs published a report that said between 1941 and 1967, as many as one third of Native children were separated from their families. And so it was a crisis, you know, about a third of Native kids were were gone. And, you know, you talk to elders and people from that time, and they'll talk about how there were communities, Native communities, where there just weren't kids. The Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in 1978. And so it was really created... Um, under this time where, you know, white homes were seen as being inherently better than native homes. And it's this remedial measure um, to stop that racism in the system. And, and we- ICWA requires that when child welfare workers consider the adoption of native children, they must first consider the family, the tribe or tribes, or at the very least, another native home. A years-long challenge to ICWA began brewing when a Texas couple, the Brackeens, fostering a native toddler, were told they couldn't adopt a child. Navajo Nation found a Navajo home, and because of ICWA, that's where the child was going to go. Um, but then the Brackeens sued. And the way that they tell it is that, um, you know, ICWA was threatening to tear their family apart and that they were told, you know, they couldn't raise this child because he was Native and they were not. And so it was this, it was unfair to them. Um, and it was also unfair to the child. And that The Brackeens took their case to state court and then the federal court until a split decision in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled it in this case ICWA was constitutional in parts, but it wasn't in others. But that decision really only affects court cases in the federal Fifth Circuit, which covers the federal judicial district in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas. The actual story of the custody cases show um, why there's still a deep bias in the system against our families, against Native families, and especially Native families who are struggling with poverty or homelessness or other issues. Um, Nagel said a lot of work went into producing the second season of the podcast. This season, it was a story that we really had to uncover. And so we had to do a ton of legwork, one, to just get our hands on the details of these custody cases. Um, And then two, to really find out like what is going on behind this attack on ICWA. Nagel says within the ICWA cases are broader implications like tribal sovereignty and the rights of tribes. If you are worried about that, if you care about indigenous rights in this country, this this is a case to be paying attention to. Episodes of This Land Season 2 drop every Monday through October 4th. In Anchorage, I'm Trip Kraus.
And that's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. If you missed any of tonight's stories, we're online at alaskapublic.org and wherever you get your podcasts. We had reports tonight from Nat Herz, Lex Trinan, Wesley Early, and Trip Kraus in Anchorage. Greg Kim and Bethel, Jeremy Shea and Juno, and Sabine Pooks and Nikiski. If you want to send us a news tip, question, or comment, email us, news at alaskapublic.org. Our audio engineer is Tobin Shelby. Annie Fight is our producer, and I'm Lori Townsend. Good night. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by... Alaska Air Cargo, connecting 21 Alaska communities to and from the lower 48 with scheduled shipping services. More information at alaskacargo.com. And by... Alaska Pipeline Service Company, proud of its ties to Alaska communities since 1977. Planned gifts as a bequest to your local station builds a legacy that is long-lasting. Thanks for considering this option. This is Statewide News on Alaska Public Media.